hi everyone. Um, we're uh, do, doing a live event tonight. Uh, it, this is going to be recorded, so you may be listening to this in the future sometime. Uh, but for those who are going to be joining us tonight, uh, we really wanted to create an environment where we can have a Guardians of the Flame podcast um, and a bit of interaction. So if you've got questions, comments, uh, we'd love to uh, hear, hear them. And uh, please write them on the probably the Facebook page. Uh, the Guardians of the Flame Facebook page is the best thing. Some of you may be watching on YouTube uh, and uh, or in other places. Um, what can, what shall I say about this uh, tonight? Um, uh, we um, we when we first kind of Josh Eaves is uh, the guy who, who who envisioned this project with myself uh, about three four years ago, and when we were looking at it, we were uh, we were understanding this sense that uh, Rabbi Jonathan Hacks, Sachs. Um, quote mentioned when he said the words religion is like fire like fire it warms but it also burns and we're the guardians of the flame and we were very aware at the time josh and i were in lebanon uh, we were sitting in a country that had experienced civil war and where a big part of the war was was religious belief and sectarian divisions and of course i live here in northern ireland behind us here is carlingford lock you can't really see it right now and on the other side of that is the Republic of Ireland. So there's a, literally a border that runs through about 200 meters from where we're sitting here. Um, and as Josh and I talked about the whole project, um, we were aware that around the world, religious belief has often brought great healing, but sometimes it's been one of the factors that has brought great um, pain. Um, over the years, we've now done a number of podcasts. We, we did the documentary Guardians of the Flame. Uh, in the back of my mind has always been the sense that one of the areas where, where Christianity particularly has been um, really damaging is in the area of sexuality. Um, Christianity can be a, a beautiful faith of following Jesus who, who may be embodied more than anyone ever could what it means to be fully human. Um, and yet uh, we live in a world where uh, in many ways, if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, um, you often feel very in danger when you're in a Christian church. You feel sometimes like you're to blame. Uh, I've sat in churches where preachers have kind of basically said all of the world's problems are because of the gay people out there and this radical gay agenda and all this stuff. And I suppose over the years as we've developed the Guardians of the Flame project, we've realized this is one of these areas where where religion burns and it hurts people and it damages people badly. Um, and over the course of the last couple of years, we've, we've recorded a couple of podcasts with people from the LGBTQ community and just kind of hearing their story. And we're really privileged tonight to have a friend of mine, John Heron, with us. Um, and uh, I've known John, you know, for a number of years um, and uh, kind of over the last couple of years I've kind of been brought into his story and heard heard his story and it's a story of there's a lot of beauty in it but there's actually a lot of real sadness in it and real, real pain and I want to kind of create a space tonight where we can hear you John and you can tell your story and um, it's obviously uh, whenever we whenever someone like you tells your story you probably feel vulnerable probably um, and we but we want to create a safe place tonight where John's not out to get anyone. He's out to tell a story that we hope will be really liberating for many of you listening. 
uh, and will give you maybe um, the real capacity to enter into a life in a bit of a new way with new eyes, particularly if you're a straight person, um, uh, particularly if you're a straight person of faith, um, that you might be able to listen tonight and hear something that enables you tomorrow to wake up and, and act to um, your gay friends in a bit of a different way. So without further ado, that was a bit of a long-winded introduction and part of that was also just hoping people are tuning in and um, we had a few, few technical issues at the start and we're just trying to make sure we've got every, all the sound and, and everything working. Um, but without further ado, um, we'll cut you know, all of that out of the way. John Heron, it's really great to have you here and thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks for the invite to be here. Yeah. yeah. John, so why don't we just jump in? Um, can you tell us about kind of your background, like maybe particularly your faith background? I suppose this conversation is about faith and sexuality. Um, what What is your kind of faith background? What's your experience of becoming a Christian and being a Christian and all that stuff? Okay, so I was brought up just in, I would say, a typical working class family in um, County Down. Um, and uh, my, my family were... I would say just a normal kind of nominal church school family. So we were, we were raised Church of Ireland. Um, so from a young age, I had a, a consciousness of God. I, I always had an awareness of, of him and would have been taught as a young boy to say prayers and things like this. Um, on my mother's side, my, my grandmother was um, a blood washed, born again, um, Pentecostal Christian. And so from knee height, you know, she, would tell us the stories from the Bible and we would be given gospel um, little gospel tracts to read and be taken along to the children's meetings and things like that. And so I always had an awareness of God, but I guess it, it really didn't mean much to me until my teenage years. So um, when I became 15, 16, my granny um, was involved with a new expression, a new church plant in Uri, and so she began to invite us along. <clears throat> so it was... Um, there was a gospel mission being held in uh, September 1997. I was 16 years of age, and um, she bribed me into going along that night with her. And I remember it was a Saturday night, and um, I guess at that age I didn't have much else to go to, so I went to the mission with her. And um, I'll always remember when we went in, the, the place was absolutely bunged. There wasn't a seat, and so she got separated from me, and she got in at the back, but I was cajoled into going up to the front. <laughs> And I remember I was sat on the seat three rows from the front, from, you know, f facing the preacher. And um, that night he just uh, preached um, Hellfire and Brimstone. So basically his message was, um, there's a heaven again and a hell to shun. Uh, God's word says you're here and God's here. There's a distance between and Jesus is the bridge. And um, so, you know, he basically, I remember just trembling in my seat mm. and, um, thinking that that night, if I died, I would be lost eternally. And so the altar call was made, and um, he asked for hands to be raised, and uh, my hand went up, and uh, I remember him saying, praise the Lord, there's a young man in the third row um, who's <laughs> coming home to Jesus. And so that night, you know, I said the sinner's prayer, so to speak, and um, my hand was shaked, you know, I sh shook hands at the door and was given a Bible and so tonight you're saved and so that was the really that was the beginning of my spiritual journey and looking back 
I, I would say it was very fear-based at the beginning. Mm. It was very much, you know, um, turn or burn. Mm. And, but it, it kind of brought me in the door. And I, I, that's where I be, began. And so after that, I, I began to read. I began to pray. I began to go to church every week. Um, I, I went back to the Church of Ireland every Sunday. But um, after a, a few months, I started to go to the Pentecostals with my granny every Saturday, Sunday night. And <clears throat> I would say it went on like that for about a year. I was kind of caught in this place of um, just this very, this very um, fear-rooted kind of uh, faith and going almost with a slavish mentality, you know, that I was, mm. I, I was afraid to displease God. But then um, a year afterwards, I had a spiritual experience for myself that um, kind of really brought into bloom my, my um, a kind of a heart-led faith. So I was, um, I began to read the Bible, as I've said, I was reading one night in the Old Testament um, in the book of Zephaniah. And you know that, cha mm. that little book has three chapters. Mm. And I used to read the Bible. Um, my father kind of discouraged me from reading the Bible. So I used to read it in the light of the hall. Um, so my bedroom door was open in the light of the land and hall. I used to read the, the Bible. And uh, most maybe teenagers out age were out sneaking in bottles of drink or <laughs> cigarettes. I was sneaking, you know, the Bible. And I was reading one night in Zephaniah, um, through this little prophecy, and I came to this beautiful verse where it says, Zephaniah 3, verse 17, where it says, um, reading the King James, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will joy over thee with singing. And he will rest in his love. And I remember being absolutely stomped by that verse, you know, because basically what it communicated to me was that God um, loved me so much that he burst into song over me. Mm. He sang over me with joy and I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't accept it. Um, and I read that verse every single day of that week. I underlined it in the, in the yellow highlighter. And I read it every single day of that week. I thought about it. I mused over it in my head. I thought I couldn't, that couldn't be true. I, I, just, I couldn't fathom it that God would love you that much that he would burst into song over you. And... Um, as I say, I thought about it every day of that week, and that following Sunday morning, my sister was being confirmed in the Church of Ireland, mm. and so I was going along to the ceremony. And so our parish was quite a large parish, maybe 400 people on a Sunday. Mm. And I remember we went in, we sat in our pew, and um, when the bishop, after he had done the confirmation service, he got up to give his homily, and he said, um, this morning I want to speak to you about... Um, the love of God, and I want to speak to you about it from a little text in the Old Testament that you probably never even heard of, from a little prophecy tucked away at the end of the Old Testament called Zephaniah. Mm. And that morning he spoke about Zephaniah 3.17, about the God who sings over you. And I remember just being so struck, this is the verse that I've thought about every day this week. And sitting in that large church among all those people, feeling almost like I had been singled out and feeling the power of those words, you know. So I, I remember being a little bit awestruck by that. And that afternoon when I went home, I was going out to the Pentecostal uh, meeting that night with my granny. And uh, I was 18 years of age. And I remember I got down on my knees before I went to the service that night. And I asked God just to, you know, to confirm in me, to validate in me, you know, 
if that verse was for me, you know, if that if that was something that he he was communicating to me that he loved me and was singing over me. And so I went along to the Pentecostal meeting that night, and it was maybe a small gathering, maybe 25, 30 people. And um, we went in, and in those days, I was very shy. And, you know, if anyone had spoke to me, in particular any preacher, my face would have went as red as a tomato. It was very shy and awkward. And we slipped into the back row and um, waited for the service to begin. And after the singing, we had a visiting speaker that night who was a Pentecostal preacher from Belfast. And he came in and he said, um, when he began his sermon, he said, I came along tonight to um, preach to you. And he said, I intended to speak on such and such. He said, but when I walked through the door, the Holy Spirit changed my message. If you have a Bible, will you please turn to Zephaniah 3, verse 17. And he spoke on that very same text. And I remember just that night, it was like, it was a watershed moment for me. And I remember, I always describe it like, as if someone pulled the lid back yeah. and like a liquid love kind of filled me. And I had this experience of just this, this awesome, incredible love. Yeah. And I remember when we left the meeting that night and um, my uncle gave me a lift home and he, I said to him, would you leave me at the end of the lane? And mm-hmm. he leave, left me at the end of the lane and I walked home the rest of the way. and. I remember just, I didn't know whether to laugh or dance or cry. I, I felt as if I could just lift, you know, reach up for the stars and put them in my back pocket because I had this, just this overwhelming feeling of just being seen and being loved. Mm. And that experience really caused my faith to, I would say, burst into bloom. It became intimate after that. Mm. And we'll probably talk about this later on, mm. but that was the experience that stood by me mm. um, whenever in later years, I received a very different message from the church mm. and almost would have maybe walked away from faith. Mm. It was that experience and the reality of it mm. and the profundity of it that, that stayed by me, you know, and has continued to right, right through until now. I'm kind of struck by, that's a beautiful story, John. Mm. It's, uh, how amazing. And I'm struck by the fact that we could talk about that and we could talk about the love of God. We could talk about Zephaniah 317, you know, for the rest of this interview. Um, and I think some people almost would say, why don't you just stop? Why do you not? Ha- don't talk about the other stuff. Just sit where it's comfortable, kind of. This yeah. is comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, hearing that story, I've heard other stories like that. And it's, a, it's, it's what probably has allowed, kind of kept me in faith, is the power of those kind of stories and the, the real felt sense of reality, of God's reality and love, and God's, the reality of his love it kind of keeps me in faith. But of course, part of the interview today is that kind of the, the shadow side of, of the church, which is how we've dealt with uh, people who experience a sense of um, uh, attraction to the same sex or feel that part of the LGBT community. Um, and so I'd love you to kind of begin to then unpack in your own story, like, what was that for you? Like, did you, what was sexuality like for you? Kind of, um, when did you become aware of your sexuality? What and then how did you then begin to reconcile that with what you were experiencing in terms of experiencing faith? And stuff? Mm. Well, I guess alongside the, the beginnings of my faith journey, there was the, this awakening of my um, awareness that I was attracted to my own gender. And that began quite young. I would say even from a young boy, you know, seven, eight, nine, I kind of realized that there was something different about me. 
Um, so I, I shared a room with my older brother, and um, even though, you know, we shared a room and you know a small space together, we our worlds were so different. We were our interests were so world, were worlds apart. So his half of the room was covered with football posters, and my half of the room was covered with like um, pop stars. And mm -hmm. um, while he would have taken ten minutes to tear apart an engine, you know, I was more interested in reading and you know world maps and. You know what he would have regarded as strange. Um, I was drawn to art and creativity, and um, from a young age knew all the words of the Wizard of Oz off by heart. <laughs> um, just was drawn to Judy Garland long before I ever knew she was a gay icon. <laughs> and um, you know, I kind of knew there was just something different. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but I knew there was something different. I mean, I was just showing my sister's birthday was last week, and I showed her a, a picture of us when we were small and. I, I still remember the photo being taken and I had a pink tie mm. and I remember insist on, insisting mm. on wearing a mm. pink tie. Mm. And it's bizarre to me when I look back to see that those, that I wasn't taught those things. Mm. They, they, they came, not, you know, natural, mm. not, they were natural to me. And um, so I guess, um, obviously didn't have any kind of terminology for it mm. or didn't have, you know, any language for it or anything. But as I went into my teens and then, you know, my hormones kicked in and I began to feel attraction to other boys. Mm. But I kind of got the message loud and clear that this was unacceptable, that this was wrong, that there were words mm. for people who felt these kind of things. Mm. And I didn't want to be called those words. Mm. You know, there were other boys in my class at school um, maybe with maybe more effeminate characteristics and they were shamed for it and bullied for it. And that, that terrified me. It's one of the things that's always terrified me is to be seen as different. And um, so I made sure that, you know, I curtailed my behavior and um, told the line and so on, you know, because I was terrified of, of, that, of that same kind of bullying. But I guess that, <clears throat> yeah, as my faith journey was, was starting, you know, in my adolescence, I began to feel this attraction and desperately was afraid of it. And... Um, I remember it kind of, whenever I was in the church as a young person, I remember being terrified by sermons and um, by um, preachers who would, as you said earlier, mm. you know, blame the gays for um, tornadoes and mm. for, you know, tsunamis mm. and things like this. And, you know, beginning to associate myself with that term terrified me. And uh, whenever I was um, 19, I remember I would say that would be the first time that I actually really felt something for someone else. And I was part of a, a Christian youth group. And it was in a very fundamentalist church, you know, the kind that, um, you know, everyone's dressed properly and everyone reads from the correct Bible and there's lots of rules and regulations. And so because there was a lot of young people in that group, I was... I was quickly drawn to it and as part of it for about a year and a half and I became attracted to someone in that in that in the youth group and um, but I didn't speak it or I didn't I wasn't able to talk about it I didn't know who to talk to about it and so I guess what happened was I, I kind of sunk into a bit of a depression um, unable to speak about what I was feeling and hearing week by week in this very fundamentalist church sermons about the sodomites mm -hmm. and about um, the filthy lives of the ungodly and so on. And so I kind of felt this awful, this awful tearing at me, you know. 
And um, I remember what happened was there was a youth leader in that youth fellowship and one day she she'd noticed that there was something wrong with me, that my, my mood had sunk. And um, so we went out for a walk in a park and uh, she said to me in the course of the walk, uh, John, we're not leaving this park today until you tell me what's what's going on. And I was so afraid to even articulate the words that I kind of hinted at it. Mm. And she picked up the hint. And I remember when it kind of dawned on her what I was saying, she physically took a step back mm. from me. And I think that, that was the thing that hurt the most. Mm. You know, it almost felt in that moment like I was contaminated. Mm. And she physically... And you were ex sharing something like, I experience that you experience attraction to another guy or mm -hmm. you weren't saying you were leading a kind of a kind of crazy life of going to clubs and you know you yeah. just felt in a sense of attraction yeah. that's yeah. it and I think because she didn't expect me to say it maybe you know she 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 said to me her her response was John that is sin mm -hmm. that is sin and so she went and told the minister you know who then called me to his office and basically you know there was like an interrogation and obviously as you said Johnny this was some these were feelings that I had the, the, it wasn't there was no relationship there was no there was not there, it was feelings I was, it was my feelings and I remember just as an as a young man eight 19 years of age sitting in the chair in his office like this mm. with my head hung and he um, wanted to lay hands on me and pray for me. And I remember just this overwhelming shame, this overwhelming sense of shame. And they basically, after that, said that they thought it would be better if I kind of moved on. You know, mm -hmm. that it is. So I never went back to the youth fellowship after that. And I, I would see people from it in the street and so on. And other members of the congregation. So obviously it was something that had got out mm. and um, they would they would walk past me and ignore me in mm. the street. And so what I actually did after that was I zipped it up. I just zipped it up and I never spoke about it for another 10 years almost. Mm. Um, and in those 10 years, I just quietly struggled on, you know, hoping that eventually maybe God would fix this. You know, this was something I absolutely believed that this was something that had to be fixed that this was um, brokenness. I remember um, I, went to, I went to Bible college for a while and when I was in Bible college, I went to the Christian bookshop and I remember looking, um, you know, being very nervously looking at the section on sexuality and, you know, discreetly buying a book um, on, you know, um, God, God and the gays mm. and um, hoping no one would see me buying it and going home and reading it. And that's where I began this, you know, my journey into kind of reparative therapy, mm -hmm. thinking that this was a part of me that was broken, mm -hmm. had to be fixed. Um, I fasted, prayed, and hoped that this part of me, that one day that it would all change, that mm -hmm. I would be married and that I would have moved mm -hmm. on from this. How long was were you in that kind of reparative therapy then? For? So, um, so what happened was I was ordained as an assistant pastor when I was 26. So I was very open with um, the people who ordained me about this part of me. And they, they basically saw, say that, okay, this is one area of your life. We, we're all broken in different areas. And um, this is an area of your life that, you know, uh, God will bring healing to. 
but in the meantime, you know, you're welcome to serve. And so th this is in the Pentecostal mm -hmm. church now. Mm -hmm. So I was, I completed my Bible college training and was ordained at the age of 26 as an assistant pastor. Um, and five years into that, again, the same situation came up where I again felt an intense attraction to a person and was deeply conflicted by it and didn't know what to do and felt like, you know, prayer and fasting hadn't changed it, mm. as much as I desperately wanted it to change. I'd even gone to deliverance ministry, you know, um, a friend of mine had told me that she'd received prayer and um, that in the, in the process of being prayed for, she'd experienced this huge like burp almost mm -hmm. and something came out of her and she was changed and I thought, oh, maybe that's what's wrong mm -hmm. with me. Mm -hmm. And so I went and there was no burp. So the, there, was there, no, there may be some kind of demon inside some, some, of Yeah, you. some kind of demon or unclean spirit. And so I went for that and then I told them what the situation was and they prayed for me, but there was no burp. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of left feeling, you know, oh, you know, just maybe there's no, maybe this is, this, this just, why did this not work for me, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so then, as I say, when I was about 31, I, um, I had this, this, this attraction again. And so I, I ended up one night breaking down to a colleague in the ministry. And he was very understanding. And um, he told me about a man that he knew who helped people to, mm. as he put it, make the switch. Um, someone who worked in the whole area of reparative therapy. Um, and if I'd be willing to go. So that began a journey of four years mm -hmm. um, of meeting with this, this individual who led in group sessions and also one-to-one -one counseling. And basically in those four years, what happened was um, week by week, you know, almost, you know the way they talk about the iceberg mm -hmm. and that like seven eighths of the iceberg is beneath the surface and one eighth is above. And so it's exploring what's beneath the surface that makes you the way you are. And so you went into a lot of family stuff, a lot of um, your history and so on, and um, trying to connect up all the dots. And so I guess you can imagine after four years of that, how incredibly wounding that is, week by week to almost have to try and scrape the inside of you out to find where did you go wrong or what, what happened to make me turn it this way. And I remember so many weeks just leaving his office, um, just this awful sense of, again, of like depression, mm. feeling, you know, will I ever emerge out of this dark wood? You know, when will this ever change? And so that went on for four years until I was 36. Mm. And when I was 36, um, we went to a reparative therapy conference that was being held in Hungary. Mm. And that was for three days. And in, at that conference, there were various speakers, both evangelical and Catholic, who um, were speaking about, you know, the same-sex um, same attraction and um, healing from it and, you know, all of that. And uh, I remember just meeting others like myself, you know, and they, they called us the overcomers. Mm -hmm. And um, we used to sit together at lunch and um, have, our, have our food. And I remember just having this moment where I kind of, looked at us all and kind of felt like we were like the lepers, mm. that we were all sat together in like a leper colony separate mm. from everyone else. And just getting to know some of the people at that table and hearing their stories. When I left that, that conference, I felt that I could no longer go back. Mm. That, you know, 
that there had to be a different way to deal with this. And mm -hmm. so as the, the plane flew out over Budapest, I remember feeling I wouldn't go back to a part of therapy mm -hmm. when I came home. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. And, and all through that time, you were then in ministry, you were pastoring mm -hmm. a church or assistant pastoring. Um, what, what was then the change from that time to, to you know, what, what started to mm -hmm. kind of move you beyond that? Well, obviously, you know, being cradled in Northern Irish evangelicalism, which mm -hmm. is a very strident, mm -hmm. everything's very black and white mm -hmm. and tied down and, you know, there's not much room for diversity. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of evangelicalism that I was participating in. But as I grew as a person and as I, all of life is encounter, mm. and I feel it when you meet, when I was, I was beginning to meet people outside my tribe mm. who confronted me with realities that I had no category for. So I began to meet people who had legitimate and very fruitful faith who didn't belong to my denomination. And that I, I didn't know what to do with that, you know. Um, as well as that, I was meeting people, you know, from the Catholic tradition. Mm -hmm. You know, we were in a Catholic area, and the kind of reason for our existence, we used to we used to joke was to kind of um, bring people out of the darkness mm -hmm. of Catholicism, yeah. and you know, so meeting people of faith in the mm -hmm. Catholic Church, you know, um, I had no. So you were starting to broaden your mindset yeah. a bit, and. Because you were, you know, that kind of the gospel hall kind of mm -hmm. life for those not from Northern Ireland. It is very narrow. I mean, there is a yeah. um, very strong sense that you may often, well, I don't know about the one that you went to, but often it almost feels like I've heard people say that we felt like we were the only Christians in the world. You know, it's like you're on an ark and mm -hmm. literally everyone else is going to hell. And you're, yeah. in this, you're the last ones left. and That's it. It's very exclusive. Um, we are God's chosen few. All others will be damned. Mm. There's no place in heaven for you. Can't have heaven crammed. Yeah. That's the kind of mentality. Yeah. And um, it was it was very um, strident and very authoritative. But when you begin to meet people that kind of take the wheels off your wagon, you mm. know, so to speak. And mm. I remember, I just remember meeting people and being able to, you know, hear Christ in them and see mm. Christ in them. Mm. And yet that conflicted so much with my inherited theology. Mm. I remember meeting people who were in AA and, talk, and mm. who talked about their relationship with God and inwardly thinking, but how, how can you? Because mm. you're not saved. You know, mm. that was the key language, yeah. if you know what I mean. Wow. Um, and so then you, your mindset started to broaden your under, kind of maybe understanding of faith and God mm. is broadening. Um, uh, I remember you um, talking about to me about the doctrine of hell and how how obviously even as you shared there that was an important part of your initial getting in the door of a church was the fear of mm. of hell and I think a lot of Protestants and probably Catholics too um, hell is an important thing. Can you share a little bit about that and even I remember one example you told as your faith was starting to become more generous. Or, or you know more kind and more open you brought some people along to a gospel hall and the, the, the doctrine of hell was yeah. roundly you know um robustly preached, you know, robustly preached. Yes. and so tell us about kind of hell and how yeah. how that played out in in your experience yeah. so i remember taking that doctrine of hell very seriously as a young person as i said that was the reason i kind of came in the gate but i remember having this moment um as a young person where, I don't know if you remember the Jack Chick 
oh, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, so yeah, they yeah, kind yeah. of informed yeah. a lot of my early theology <laughs> and they were very vivid and very grotesque mm. you know in their depictions of what would happen in the afterlife yeah. and very clear very black and white and that little kind of comic book yeah. tracks used to kind of convert uh, non-christians exactly um, yeah. and yeah. there's this kind of faceless god is this kind of faceless being yeah. on a white throne and, yes and then there's everyone screaming in hell and, yes you know, yeah and imagine the judgment day, you know, the books are opened now showing the uncensored version of your life, mm, you know. Mm. So, um, so I took it very seriously. And so, you know, my faith was so sincere. I was very driven by that, you know. And so, you know, in my young discipleship, we would go open our preaching and, you know, door to door knocking and track distribution, mm. all in effort to rescue people, you know. And it was really, there was love in our heart for others. Mm. I remember actually, you know, I just remember many tears about that, even mm. in my own quiet times, being very sincerely, you know, convicted about that and about, you know, where my loved ones would go if they weren't yeah. born again. Um, but toward my late 20s, I, I remember just, I, I think I've shared this with you before, but a watershed moment was in 2007 when we had a gospel mission in, in our own church and we had invited a preacher along and so every night he really hammered home hellfire and brimstone and it it was just it became unbearable and I, I think the worst night was midway through the mission and um, i still remember the four points of his sermon so he preached that night on um a burning hell beneath you an angry god above you all your sins behind you and the white throne judgment ahead of you. And even I, as a Christian, wanted to ring the Samaritans that night <laughs> for help because it was so depressing. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had actually invited a friend along, and this was a, a girl who was struggling a lot with a lot of personal stuff going on in her life. And I'd, I'd been inviting her to church for a long time, and she eventually came along to the mission that, that week. And she was there for three nights in a row on, on the night that he preached that message. She said to me at the door, thanks, John, but I will not be back. And she said, you told me that it would be good news. Mm. And I, I just remember those words, those words pierced me. And I remember, you know, saying to my senior pastor at that time, there's just something wrong. There's something wrong, you know, with this message. This doesn't fit with what I feel God to be or my experience of God to date or even my own reading of the scripture. This, mm. It doesn't seem to square with how there's something wrong and so that was really where I began you know to mm. to look at that and to really read into that and examine that and so having now deconstructed that mm. you know I um, I think you know perfect love drives out all fear mm. and that even includes the fear of God mm. and um, uh, he that feareth it says is not made perfect in love mm. you know for God is love and so, yeah, to have come on that journey, you know, to have deconstructed that and to have um, leaned into the true heart of who God is, as is reflected in the person of Jesus, mm. is kind of where I land now, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, there, you're kind of on your journey, you were beginning to kind of you use the word deconstruct, kind of a, maybe a theology of hell or... Um, you were bringing people along. Um, you were running a cafe, or you started a cafe at some point later on. 
you want to just tell us about that, the Velveteen Rabbit? Yeah. So no, what so what happened was by the by the time I'd finished reparative therapy at the age of thirty six, at, at that stage I had just been finishing up um, a master's degree in mm. theology, and so studying theology at master's level obviously brings you into t contact with a lot of things that academically are very stretching, pulling. Mm. And so begin to read the Bible in a different way, being introduced to some very wonderful spiritual writers and thinkers that obviously push all your buttons as an evangelical and take you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And that was very disconcerting for me. And um, so it kind of turned the apple cart on its head a little bit. And um, so I was dealing with that, you know, academically. As dealing with disillusionment from just you know ministry and church life and just seeing the power struggles that can sometimes go on in, in evangelicalism I suppose in all church life and then just dealing with my own my own um, self and you know I realized that time was ticking on and this wasn't changing in spite of my best you know attempts to, to fix it and it hadn't changed it wasn't changing and what was I going to do about that and so those three things kind of coalesced and when I was 36 I I had what I sometimes refer to as my little Britney Spears moment a bit of a bit of, a, bit of an undoing and um, I had to take I had to step back and I took time off church and off ministry for a few months and I guess in that time I, I felt for the first time in a long time able to breathe hmm. and um, I kind of felt like after that that I I didn't know if I could go back into ministry after that in the same way but because I was the sole pastor at that time um, and you know my life was intertwined with the church it's not so easy as you know to extricate yourself just like that from that so I went back into it and um, but I, I had this sense that it wouldn't be like this forever that a change that I was coming to a fork in the road and that mm. I'd have to choose um, and so I've always loved to bake and um, and to cook and so on and I um, I've always done like you know in the church we used to do dinners and banquets and things like that and so basically I in 2019 I got the opportunity to open up a cafe mm. and we called it after much initial you know there was a lot of debate about what we would call it so lots of well-meaning Christians were coming up with names like um, Taste and See mm -hmm. or, you know, The Overflowing Cup. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but none of those kind of resonated with me. And I remember just one night feeling that, that it should be given the name The Velveteen Rabbit. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're aware of the mm -hmm. story, but it's a 1920s book written by Marjorie Williams. Mm -hmm. And essentially it's the story of a little stuffed toy rabbit who wants to know what it means to be real. Yeah. And I was initially, some people might be familiar with it from Friends, it was quoted in an episode or two of Friends, but um, essentially what drew me to the book was perhaps the most prolific quote in the book, where um, the little rabbit is in the nursery with all the other toys one day, and he wants to know what does it mean to be real? And he asked the question, what is real? Does it mean having things that stick inside you and uh, so that buzz inside you in a stick out handle. And he's having a dialogue with the skin horse, who's the oldest and wisest of all the toys. And the skin horse replies to the little rabbit and says, no, real isn't how you're made, it's what you become. Mm -hmm. When a child loves you for a long time, then you become real. Mm 
And the, the, the rabbit asks him, does it hurt? And the skin horse answers, sometimes, because he was always truthful. But usually by the time you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Sometimes, he said, it takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to those who break easily or who have sharp edges or have to be kept carefully locked away. Because generally by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out and you become shabby in the joints. But these things don't matter at all. Because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to those who don't understand. And once you're real, you can't become unreal again. And I guess that was the quote from the book that caught my heart. Mm. And I, I opened the cafe with the heart and desire that this would be a place of hospitality mm. and welcome and inclusion. And that this would be a place where people would be loved well so that they could be real. You know, they could be themselves. They could be authentically themselves. And I guess, you know, I, I'd come to believe that um, relationship could be built well over food and over a table that maybe often couldn't happen over a pew, mm -hmm. over a pulpit. Um, and so that was my aim at opening, opening it up, mm -hmm. um, a place in my local community where relationship could, could flourish, where people could be given jobs, where people could be welcomed and good food could be provided. Mm -hmm. And I guess little did I know that when I called it the Velveteen Rabbit, that that would become then the parable of my own life. Mm -hmm because it was in opening the cafe that um, kind of brought me onto the journey where I left the church mm. and then finally came to terms with who I was. Mm. And kind of came out or yeah. fully became real? Or, yeah. Became real. So what actually happened, I was kind of, it was a, it was almost like it happened almost by default. Mm. So, um, so obviously I was saying I had, the, I had been living with this tension inside and um, a month into opening it was um, a gay pride week in our in our city and um, so the visibility was everywhere and um, and I, I kind just of rainbow flags. Rainbow flags and um, events and mm. people sharing and people talking about mm. their own lives and and so I you know, just seeing this and, and, and feeling as well my own you know, that I couldn't even I was thirty eight years of age and I couldn't even use the word gay. Mm. You know, that even after mm. everything I'd been through, mm. I couldn't even use the word gay. Mm. And so I was struggling so much in church and we'd just opened a cafe. It was busy from the get-go. There was so much to do. I was trying to do that, mm. plus hold down the ministry in the church. Mm. And I guess the pressure would kind of got, got, got on top of me. And um, I remember one, um, one Wednesday night at the Bible study, I'd forgot my, my notes. Um, for that evening and so that's always a dangerous thing when you kind of free wheel mm. because you're <laughs> being able mm. to say some things that mm. are not you know you haven't planned to say and I'd kind of I kind of let let slip that night to the people who were gathered for Bible study how much I was internally struggling mm. and they put it down to tiredness or exhaustion but I, I felt like I couldn't articulate what the real issue was mm. and I remember driving home that night from the Bible study feeling that I was trapped mm. that I was trapped and that I wouldn't ever be able to um, to speak about this openly and freely. Mm. That was on a Wednesday night. And on the Saturday morning, um, it was the kind of parade day for Pride in the city. And um, one of the girls wanted to put up in the window um, a rainbow flag. Mm. And I kind of almost, you know, my heart stopped and I said, 
I'm not sure that's a good idea because if you do, um, I could get in trouble for it. Mm. Um, but the flag went up and um, half an hour later, I got in trouble for it. Mm. Um, so one of the leaders in the church essentially burst into the cafe and um, in front of staff and um, in front of patrons and customers, um, essentially humiliated me and um, embarrassed me in front of everyone. And so that was when the secret got out the gate, mm. if you like. And um, I felt after that, that um, there was no going back. Mm. So it was a very painful thing and it was a very, um, a very hurtful thing. Um, I offered my resignation to the church after that and um, essentially walked through the pain of that for the next year and a half. Mm. Um, and to be honest to this day, I still mm. in some ways grieve that and grieve what happened mm. uh, through that whole journey. Mm. But um, it almost was the push that I needed, mm. Johnny, you mm. know, because now it was no longer something that I could, mm. you know, kind of tuck away and hope that it would be dealt with one day. Now it was right here mm. and now I had to deal with it. Mm. And so that began the journey of coming to terms. Mm. And I guess, you know, as much as I lost friends and lost a lot of people that I thought, you know, were at my side of that, I, f I encountered a whole new world of people who, you know, many of whom were robust Christians, mm. people of faith and love Jesus, mm. who offered solidarity and support and mm. who stood side by side and began to walk me through that journey of acceptance and becoming real, like the Velveteen Rabbit was all about. Mm. And so that's been my journey the past mm. two and a half years now. Mm. And um, mm. yeah, I feel like, you know, um, having walked that, that they're, they're like the Psalm says, you know, um, weeping may endure a night, mm. but joy comes in the morning, mm. you know? Mm. Um, wow, John. So that, what the emotions you must have been feeling in that time, um, what were those feelings after, you know, an elder of the church bursts in, kind of outs you in front of everyone and humiliates you and... Mm -hmm you know, the experience that you then lived with for the next couple of years of kind of getting over that is what many um, LGBT people probably face all around the world, probably mm. you're trying to reconcile their faith, deeply held faith with their sexual orientation. What, what were some of those kind of deep kind of emotions, feelings yeah. that you lived with in that time? Well, I guess um, for the first, it just happened just before lockdown, you know, so for the first few months before lockdown hit, I was just, I buried myself in busyness mm. to mm. kind of shut it out, you know. Um, and then when lockdown happened, I had time and space to, to at last begin to face it, mm. you know. And I guess, you know, I, I revisited that experience when I was 18. Um, I remember having a moment in my house where I realized that I could either live the rest of my life in fear or leaning into the love which is there, as I had experienced. Mm. Um, I began to read more widely and just even being surrounded by um, affirming and wonderful people who, mm. who, who said it was okay, mm. you know, to be yourself. Just it was so validating mm. and um, empowering. I said it became very important to you. I think a lot of people, uh, I've been in this position where I would be, th I've come to a theological understanding that actually God really can affirm a same-sex relationship and actually love it and actually there can be a real gift in that but I've been in places where I've gone maybe I won't tell anyone about that and, mm. I've, and I'm in a privileged place where I'm a 
a straight guy with a wife and kids and and I actually don't have to speak about it. I can keep quiet. I can keep myself clean and not mm -hmm. get into trouble or controversy. Um, I suppose one of the things I've realized is that when I do that, when I keep quiet, it more and more puts people like you in a place where you're on your own. You've got, and and I suppose the journey, not that this is about me, but maybe it's about many people like me who journey from becoming, uh, from being affirming of same-sex relationships to actually really trying to being allies. To use the word solidarity, and mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things that I've realized. I'm so privileged. I've got lots of privilege. What am I going to do with my privilege? And am I going to spend it on a kind of a career path for me that keeps me right in the evangelical world? Or am I going to actually kind of choose to be in solidarity with people like you that really are often feeling a sense of marginalization, isolation? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thanks yeah, guess, for sharing that story. You know. Yeah, there's, a, there's an old story about um, um, an Arab king or a sultan and um, so two, a prisoner was brought before him and um, he he was to be given the death penalty. Mm. And so the king said to him, you can pick your poison, mm. in effect, you know, choose your, mm. you can either face the firing squad or you can go behind the black door. Mm. And um, the prisoner said, well, what's behind the black door? And he said, well, you'll have to find out. You pick your poison. Mm. I'll give you three days to think about it. And so when he came back after three days, he picked the firing squad mm. and he was taken out and shot mm. and the king's assistant said to him or the king said that's that was a tragedy and the, and the king's assistant said well um what why or what's behind the black door and he said freedom freedom lies behind the back door and i've only ever known a few to choose that path mm. because we're so used to taking the familiar road or the fear and what what my experience has been is you know there was a black door there for so mm. long and i was so afraid of it mm. afraid of my own humanity mm. afraid of um of being who i was created to be and i discovered that when i went through the black door that there, there was nothing to be afraid of mm. and so pressing through and actually meeting real people mm. who are gay and are wonderful and mm. creative and so full of um, life and joy and not these monsters that I'd been abstractly warned that they were and finding such goodness there and mm. such um, beauty in, in those people has been massively healing for me. Mm. And um, just like you were saying, Johnny, you know, I think it's so important, you know, when you meet people who are standing in solidarity with you, mm. you know, not just tolerating you, you know, um, not just wanting to kind of Mm. sweep you under the rug because now the rug, the, rug, the rug has got so lumpy you know we've got to mm. say what we're going to do mm. um, but um, I, I remember reading about um, a famous speech that was given by Eli, Eli Weissel before the White House in 1999 and he called it the pearls of indifference I'm not sure if you've come across mm. it before basically it was a paper written about um, the Jews and the concentration camps in the Second World War and he said, you know, for them, in living in that terror, their only consolation was that the free world must not know what was going on behind those, you know, black gates and, and barbed um, wire fences. Mm. Because surely if they knew, they would move heaven and earth mm. to help. Mm. And then he said, afterwards, we discovered that they did know mm. that the Pentagon and the White House and the State Department did know what was happening. But why the indifference? Mm. 
because in their world there was three groups of people there were the perpetrators mm -hmm. the victims and the bystanders mm -hmm. and so he wrote this very moving speech called the pearls of indifference mm -hmm. that the opposite the true opposite of love is not hate what mm -hmm. is indifference mm -hmm. and i guess you know for me what has been so wonderful and liberating is to to meet people who have your back so to speak mm -hmm. and stand with you and um, get stones fired at them because they're standing so close to mm -hmm. you and um, yeah, and that 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 hastens the healing process for people like mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I remember uh, Desmond Tutu, who died last week, um, said, uh, you know, he'd rather go to hell than a homophobic mm -hmm. heaven. You know, and yes. He said, um, you know, if I, well, what was his quote? If a, a mouse is standing on the uh, the you know the tail of a, uh, no, if a if an elephant is standing on the tail of a mouse the mouse is not going to appreciate your neutrality you know mm, and i yeah, think yeah. um in many ways we can as christians there's this kind of um there's this like kind of being neutral is seen as holy you know that there's good on both sides uh you know that will just be in the middle um mm -hmm. and and i think the issue of sexuality is one of those ones where maybe this next decade is going to be a time where many many christians are going to actually realize it's not okay to just be in the middle and be, you know, that indifference, either indifference or just mm. kind of benevolent kind mm. of quietness. But actually, we need to start speaking out um, because it, it affects people. There's suicide, mm -hmm. there's mental illness. Um, uh, John, um, you, you were saying to me before we interview, you got a Bible with you and you were going to wanted to kind of uh, even look at a passage of scripture. Mm -hmm. would, you, would that be helpful? Sure, yeah, time? that's okay. I, I'm always aware, you know, when holding a Bible of the ambivalence mm. of this symbol for a lot of people, especially mm. for a lot of gay people, mm. because the way this book has been used to, you know, to bring harm and to bring a lot of hurt. Mm. And I always, you know, I've been saying lately that um, it's not the Bible, it's patterns of interpretation of the Bible that um, are hard to shift mm. because they've been so deeply ingrained. Mm. But one of the blessings for me in the last few years has been to be able to, you know, to see it with fresh eyes mm. and to read texts and um, with and to encounter inclusion in the text mm. in a way that I had never done before. Mm. So many passages I could speak about, you know, mm. but this, this afternoon I was just think re revisiting um, Acts chapter 10. Mm -hmm. And so it's the story of um, of Simon Peter and um, how he was the first one to open the door to let the Gentiles in. Mm. Now, if you remember the context of it, um, at that time, 99% of the church mm. believed that the gospel was only for the Jews, mm. that it was that the Gentiles had no access to the gospel. And, um, and so the Holy Spirit was began to push the church beyond its boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was just reading this again this, this afternoon, and you know the story Simon Peter was in his house praying, mm -hmm. and he got a vision, and in the vision a sheep was let down from heaven, mm -hmm. and inside the sheep was all kinds of mm -hmm. unclean animals for a Jew, so probably reptiles and a pig or two and unclean birds. Mm -hmm. and. Peter heard a voice saying, rise and kill. And now if we had heard that, we would have thought that was the devil speaking, mm. because obviously as a Jew, mm. the boundaries. And um, he said, not so, Lord, because I've never touched anything unclean. And God said to him three times, don't call what I have cleansed mm. unclean. Mm. And, you know, um, and so while Peter was musing on this, 
um, a delegation came from the Italian Cornelius' house, mm. sent for Peter. And so Peter, you know, as the recipient of this vision, went with them, went to the Gentile Cornelius' house and found a group of people assembled. Mm. And when he stepped in, um, I was struck, the first thing he said to them was, now you know how the law forbids me to step into you know an unclean Gentile's house. Mm. And I can imagine in that moment all the people assembled were thinking, oh no, mm. you know, here we go. Here the same old rhetoric, mm. you know, it's us and them. Mm. But then Peter says, but, you know, but, and this was the verse where he said, you know, um, it says, yeah, verse 28, and, and Peter said to them, you know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come onto one of another nation. But God, and I always love that word, but, because mm. it, it means that there's more. Mm. You know, it means that maybe God has something more up his sleeve mm. or God has more to say or more to teach. And he says, but God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Mm. And so he began to share with them, and as he was sharing with them, the Holy Spirit fell. You know the story, and they all, you know, got filled with the Spirit. And um, when Peter went back to his his brethren, they jumped on top of him, and they basically said, "What on earth have you done, Peter? You know, you've trespassed. You know, the lines here. You've crossed the divide. You've done what you ought not to have done. You've, you know, went to Gentiles. How could you do that? How could you do that? How could you sit at the table with the unclean?" And basically what Peter said to them was, look, you know, I would have thought the same, but I had a transformative experience mm. and an encounter that undid my previous paradigm. Mm. And so if God has said yes, then who am I to say mm. no? Mm. And it says that, you know, they, 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 they all rejoiced them together, that God had granted repentance to the Gentiles. And so I think, you know, scriptures like those teach us that it's not our job to dictate to the Spirit mm. where he can blow or where he can't blow, but just to keep up with him mm. in the direction that he's going. Mm. And I just think around the world today, mm. you know, there's such change coming. Mm. And people of um, who are gay, mm. you know, are starting to realize that, you know, that what they thought once was a prohibited space for them is now opening the doors. And people are beginning to to realize that you know that there is a community, an enduring percentage of the population that are gay, that it will always be gay, and um, that God is at work. Mm. You know, and something I hear in your story, and, and kind of um, uh, kind of from the first times I remember talking to you about all this, is this kind of connection with the, that that really initial story about a God who rejoices over me with singing. You then went into a place where, where the doctrine of hell was very real and you're going to burn in hell if you don't. And fear was very much a part of kind of getting you in the door of the church, but almost yeah. kind of afraid to leave, but also shame maybe about sexuality. And when I've he heard you tell your story, it just seems so there is a real place where you've kind of come full circle back mm -hmm. to that place where you've yeah. rediscovered that original God who actually loves you for who you are um, and doesn't. Yeah. want to kind of change you into something different. I think it's the poem by, is it T.S. Eliot, um, you know, all of life is a journey mm. and the end of your journey is to go back to where you began mm. and to know the place for the first time. Mm. And I kind of feel, that's why I brought this little, mm. I brought this little Kintsugi mm. pot mm. with me and um, 
Um, as you know, um, I'm sure you've heard of Kintsugi yeah, before. Yeah, I've heard. Just explain what it is. So this is, um, this is a Japanese art form. Mm -hmm. And um, back in the 1500s, there was a Japanese emperor who broke his favorite Chinese teacup. And he sent it back to the Chinese emperor to have it fixed. Mm -hmm. And they stapled it together and sent it back. And he was very disappointed, <laughs> thought it was a shoddy piece mm -hmm. of work. And so he gave it to his own craftsmen. And they took it and they came up, they developed this new art form, what, what, what they call Kintsugi, in which basically they take the broken pieces and fuse it together with gold lacquer or molten gold, so that rather than concealing them where the crack was, it only accentuates it and, and now brings out its value and its worth even more. And so I just think there's such a beautiful message in that, that you know, it's this message of being authentic and real that we don't have to conceal anymore you know mm. driven by fear fear of a, of a harsh and um, you know prejudiced god mm. that we, we can be ourselves and be open and show those wounded places mm. and know that there's healing in the woundedness mm. and hope for others as well mm. and so I, I keep this with me and as you know i'm going to work in prison mm. shortly mm. and uh, that'll be my message that mm. you know that there's always hope mm. that you know there's no life too far gone Mm. That there's uh, no pit so deep, mm. as Corey Ten Boom mm. said, where that God's love is not greater. Mm. Mm. Um, we I, I, we're going to finish uh, really soon. We probably should be finishing um, uh, around about now. But I just want to just open it up. If anyone watching's got any questions they want to kind of throw in or comments, um, feel free to do that. But maybe I could just kind of ask you something. I mean, that's a actually really beautiful way you kind of climaxed your comments there with that story of the pot, John. Um, but I wonder in a practical way for people listening, um, it, it seems to me like for, for Christians and maybe for other people of other faiths, to some other faiths too, but and I'll talk about my own, in the Christian world, you've got churches where they almost can resemble homophobic spaces where if you're gay, you'll be really ostracized. Then you've got a lot of Christian churches where they're really good, full of great people, lovely people who will say things like, we love you, John, as you are. We love you. Um, but once you get in the church, they you soon realize that they do see you as broken mm -hmm. and broken because of your sexuality and you need to change. And and so end up those churches end up becoming quite suffocating, I think, for, for mm -hmm. LGBT people. Um, I think Americans use this phrase, bait and switch. It's like you're, you're baited in, come, come to us, we're welcoming. Mm -hmm. But then once you're in, they kind of go, but you've got to change. You, you mm -hmm. can't be. Mm -hmm. um, and then you've got churches that are actually beginning to go, what would it look like to um, accept people for who they are and, and see that actually maybe in Scripture uh, where Paul is talking about same-sex attraction, um, a word, homosexuality, that was only really translated in the 1940s, I think, for yeah. the first time in Scripture as homosexuality, Maybe what Paul was describing wasn't a loving relationship with between two men or two women. Maybe he was talking about temple prostitution. Maybe he was talking about pedophilia. Maybe he was talking about things that really are simply not right. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder what you've got to say to kind of that, to kind of move people from that kind of benevolent bait and switch place to actually much more brave space mm -hmm. of. Going, actually, no, we're gonna we're gonna take a step of bravery here, and really affirm same-sex relationships. Is that would that yeah. be important to you? And yeah, I guess I've been through all three now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, 
I guess I would say that I understand that it's a journey. Mm. It's a journey and um, it's not a black, it's not, it's a journey that some people don't come to quickly. You know, for me, I didn't come to it quickly. I understand that, I have patience for that. But at the same time, um, while people are on that journey, I think it's important that they don't talk about it as though it's a settled issue. Um, I think that they need to look at where the life is, where the fruit is, and you know, when 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 people begin to accept and affirm and actually to celebrate people, what you actually begin to see is instead of lives falling apart and people living and you know hiding away or hiding away their gifts under a bushel or feeling like second class citizens, you actually begin to see really healthy lives. Mm. You know, people beginning to bear fruit mm. and to beginning to, you know, manifest the good things that follow a life mm. that is affirmed and mm. celebrated and mm. welcomed. And um, I think that's a beautiful thing. And it's sometimes fear that holds people back. Mm. But um, as I've said all through this tonight, that, you know, when you deal with the fear and let love be courageous enough to lean into the love that's there, mm. it just, it, it, it seems to be transformative. Mm. And um, where the spirit of the Lord is, mm. there is freedom. Mm. And you're, you're touching there that, um, you know, the Bible says, by your fruit, you'll know them. And, and you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the fruit something produces shows us about mm -hmm. the health of the tree. You know, exactly. And, and so I guess you would compare John Heron five, ten years ago, zipped up inside mm -hmm. a closet, not able to share, trying to get fixed to a John Heron now that is uh, much happier, healthier. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's something as well Christians maybe need to look at is what kind of fruit is on our tree. Um, Amen. Yeah. Amen to that. Um, yeah, John, is there anything more you want to say? This is a kind of a live conversation. I don't know if there's going to be too many questions coming through tonight. Um, but um, is there anything else you kind of want to say? I mean, this is the first time you've shared this in a public setting mm -hmm. before. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Johnny, to share it. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's excruciating sometimes to be vulnerable, and I'll mm -hmm. probably have a vulnerability <laughs> hangover tomorrow. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I guess, you know, for me, obviously, having lived in shame for so long, there are still days when I'm triggered by that. Mm -hmm. And there's still times whenever I retreat a little mm -hmm. bit into, you know, into the old psyche. Mm -hmm. And I'm grateful in those times for friends, mm -hmm. good friends that I have around me in the cafe. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't been to the Velveteen Rabbit, get down there. There's some wonderful mm -hmm. people there. Um, mm -hmm. And um, friends that stand by me mm -hmm. um, that encourage me on the way. Mm. And um, and I guess, you know, I look to the future now with a great deal of hope. Mm. Um, and I guess to be able, the reason why I kind of consented to come along tonight to share my own story is because I think about young 18 year old Johns mm. sitting in congregations mm. all around this province tonight. Mm. Um, sitting, you know, listening in a pew, you know, when those sermons that I heard are being mm. preached and, you know, feeling like, they can't be themselves or that um, that God doesn't love them as they are, but as they should be, as the mm. preachers will tell them. Mm. And I guess, you know, it gives me hope for the future to think that there will be a different day mm. and that young people won't have to wait so long mm. to 
um, become who they're really meant to be. Mm. Mm. Well, John, um, I just want to thank you for, for putting yourself in a vulnerable place and, and sharing your story. Um, and you've shared it not with bitterness, but with pragmatism, reality, feet on the ground, but also with kindness and with love and generosity and um, all things that I've seen in you every time I've met you, you know. And um, and I'm excited to think about you moving to Dublin and becoming a chaplain in a, in a prison and mm. a model being Gregory, Father Gregory Boyd of Homeboy yeah. Industries and yeah. setting up maybe a cafe there and using your cafe baking, chefing skills to, yeah. to help young kids get their lives transformed. Are you excited? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, your, your story is amazing, John, and I hope it continues to liberate lots of people wherever they are, whether the young LGBT people, as you talked about, who might be 18 and just really struggling, or nice, comfortable, privileged, straight people who realize actually maybe we need to take courageous steps to make people like you safer um, and healthier. Mm. So Enjoy. thanks, John, for your story. You. It's brilliant. Really good. Well, um, Thank you. And we're just really appreciative, Josh and I and Fra and uh, Sorka, Jen, those of us who've been involved in the Guardians of the Flame project. We're, we're grateful for people like you coming and sharing your stories. Um, we're grateful for the Community Relations Council. It's helped kind of fund this kind of series of podcasts. Uh, if you're watching this, we're going to do another live podcast on Tuesday night at 7.30. Uh, and we have a guy called Sami Awad. He's a Palestinian Christian um come and join me um he's an amazing guy he runs an organization called the holy land trust he's a champion for nonviolence. some people have called him a palestinian martin luther king um he's uh just a, a a brilliant man of kindness integrity but power and passion and um so uh, sami awad on tuesday night uh, amazing story from bethlehem palestine uh went and listened to that story as well so thanks for everyone who's listening. Thanks, John, again, for your story. You're welcome. Thank you.